Uh, we are where we're at in the book of Revelation. We are just beginning to deal with the events that occurred during the tribulation. We have kind of built upon so many things up to this point. Jesus being among his churches, Jesus' letter to the churches, heavenly worship scenes. And then in chapter 6, we broke out into the, the seals where Jesus began to unleash judgment upon the world. And so far, we've looked at the first four seals. And so as a recap, seal one, a, a conqueror, the Antichrist, comes to the world. He comes, he brings peace, he brings prosperity, and the world as a whole sort of follows after him and begins to worship him. But the peace he brings is not a, a real peace, it's not a lasting peace, because partway through all of the peace he brings, the second seal is cracked and there is war and there is chaos. And so the nations go to war against nations. There's rioting in the streets, violence in the streets. And as is often the case when you would find that sort of war and chaos in every nation and every city across the land, there begins famine, poverty, and economic collapse. Nations where there is great war, they suffer terribly, the people who are there. And so as the famine, the poverty, the economic collapse happen, the, the government that the Antichrist has started, it begins to increase and it extremes, it, it gives it power and goes more and more until people are willing to take the mark, which we haven't talked about much, but we will in some point. Uh, and so people become really more fully committed to his empire and to Babylon that he, that he starts. And then there becomes death. Famine, poverty, economic collapse leads to death. Death through the wars, death through the famines, Death through the plagues, death through the beasts of the field. So many deaths that one-fourth of the earth uh, in today's population would be over one billion people die as a result uh, of what is being unleashed on the earth at this time. Now, one of the things we mentioned is these, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, these four riders, they, they are sealed, but they're not fully restrained in this day. For instance, the Bible warns us about the spirit of the Antichrist, which is in the world today, uh, deceiving and destroying people's lives. We know we see war and chaos all throughout our world today. There are wars and rumors of wars going on all over the place. There are riots in the streets and there's violence in the cities. Uh, there, it's there. The famine, the poverty, economic collapse. We don't see it as much in America, but you go to other countries and all of that is there. And all of this is the work of these riders. There's death through war, famine, plagues. All of these things are going on in our world today in some extent. But there will come a day in which, because right now, all of those are somewhat restrained. Paul talks about someone restraining. But the day will come when the restraint is broken off, the seals are broken, and the four riders will run through the earth unhindered, unfettered, and do whatsoever they want. So today we're going to finish chapter 6, and we'll see the last two seals and what happens as they're broken. And in this passage, we do see, in the part we're going to look at, we do see something of a contrast. In some ways, we see a contrast between saints in heaven and sinners on the earth. There are similarities as both are sort of praying, but they're praying two different things, and they're praying about different issues. So open your Bible to Revelation 6. We're only going to look at the last few verses, but I'm going to read the whole chapter to get the, uh, the kind of the feel of it. should be page 952. I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. 
Revelation 6 and 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And the one who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And another red horse, and another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that people would kill one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and one who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill the sword and famine and plague and the, by the wild animals of the earth. And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and the testimony which they had held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told they were to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed, even as they had been, was completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by the wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the eminent people, the commanders, the wealthy, the strong, and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the sight of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The title of the message this morning is The Beginning of Sorrows. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion today. We need you to guide us, to open our hearts, to receive your word. Help us to lay aside any cares of life we may have brought in. Help us to push aside what the, what the enemy would say about, us, about this. About trying to make us believe this isn't real or this isn't really your word. And Father, let your spirit come and let him take this and press upon us. With these things to both convict us and challenge us, strengthen us and encourage us. And above all, make us aware of the times. Let what we study in the book of Revelation make us like the children of Ishakar, who understood the times and knew what must be done. Father, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches in our day and let us do what you want done. Let us live for your glory. Let us redeem the time. For the days are short and the days are evil. Fill us with your spirit today. Work in our lives. Father, you know our hearts. You know what needs to be done. You know who's lost and needs to be saved. You know who's backslidden and needs to be restored. You know who's discouraged and needs to be encouraged. You know who's weak and needs to be strengthened. You know what needs to be done and we surrender to you. Do what you know needs to be done in all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the four seals have been broken. The 
four horsemen have gone throughout the earth in full force, but the end has not come. This is just the beginning of sorrows that is going on. The end doesn't come all at once. Instead, there's a progression where things go from bad to worse. Then we get to seal five, the slaughtered saints. Now, one of the questions people have about this period of, of time is what will life be like for disciples of Jesus? And the answer to this question is given when Jesus opens the fifth seal. And under the fifth seal, and the fifth seal breaks, there's an altar. And under the altar are the souls of those who have been killed because of the word of God, because of the testimony they had maintained. While this may sound like, wow, I think it's obvious. What would we expect to happen to disciples of Jesus in a world where Satan basically Rules all things openly. What would Satan do given free reign on the earth? What would he do to disciples of Jesus? Well, he will kill as many of them as he possibly can. These folks are are martyred. They have been slaughtered. Look, hold your finger here. So we're coming back. But look at Revelation 13, verse 7 and 8. This is a time when the beast is ruling the earth. And it says in verse 7, it was given to him to make war over the saints and overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of the lo- the book of life of the lamb who has been slaughtered. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. OK, so go ahead and turn back here. The beast will make war with the saints of God and he will slaughter them. Saints from every tribe and every nation and every language and every people will be slaughtered by the beast, by the Antichrist and by the army he raises. And while the saints are slaughtered, the rest of the people of the earth will worship the beast. As the Antichrist slaughters the saints, the people of earth will think this is a good thing. This is what needs to be done. This is what should be done. This is the right thing to happen. But it is important that we realize that it says it will be people from every tribe and nation and people and language. What that means is this slaughter of the saints won't merely happen in some far-off Middle Eastern country we might not be able to find on a map. It won't happen in some far-off place that, that we would struggle to maybe pronounce properly. It won't be in just some like Muslim-controlled nation. No, it will be in every country, including countries like Canada and England, France, And even the United States of America. The saints in this time are slaughtered for two reasons. For the word of God, it says. They were slaughtered because of the word of God. Because they believed the word of God was true. 
They were slaughtered for the word of God because they taught the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. They were witnesses. They they spoke out about the word of God being true. They were unwilling to compromise the Bible as the word of God. They were unwilling to compromise about what it said about salvation being in Christ alone. They were unwilling to compromise its morality. They were unwilling to compromise the Bible being the final rule and authority for all things, including theology, which means who is and who is not God. And they refused to compromise the Bible and say the beast is God. They said, no, no, he is not. And because of their devotion to the word of God, they're slaughtered. But it's not just the word of God. It is also the testimony of Jesus Christ. And because of the testimony, they maintain. Now, we learned in Revelation 1, 2, that when the word of God and testimony were paired, the testimony is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so what we mean by the testimony of Jesus Christ is the testimony Jesus is Savior and Lord. It is the testimony Jesus is the only Savior and the only Lord. It is the testimony Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus died a sacrificial death. Jesus rose victorious over the grave and now offers salvation to whoever will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. It is a testimony saying Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was not just a neat teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh. They're murdered because they hold to the word of God. And because they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. These two issues are the sole basis for the slaughter of the saints. Now the question could arise. How in the world will the Antichrist be able to openly wage this kind of war against the saints? And slaughter them from every nation, tribe, people and language. How does faithfulness to Jesus... End with the saints being hated and slaughtered. Listen to how evangelist Paul Washer explains this coming persecution. The church in America is going to suffer so terribly. And we laugh now. They'll come after us and they'll come after our children. They will close the net around us when we're playing soccer mom and soccer dad. While we're arguing over so many little things and mesmerized by so many trinkets. The net even now is closing around us and our children and our grandchildren. And it does not cause us to fear. We will be isolated from society as has already happened. Anyone who tries to run for office who actually believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until finally we are silenced. We will be called things that we're not and persecuted, not for being followers of Jesus, But for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which, of course, is love and tolerance. We'll go down as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind in history. But at the same time, know this persecution is always meant for evil, but God always means it for good. And is it not better to suffer in this life to have an extra weight of glory in heaven. You must settle this in your mind. This is the only, this is the one thing I want to say to you over and over again. 
down through history, you have the wrong idea of martyrdom and persecution. You think that these men were persecuted and martyred for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. That was the real reason. But no one heard that publicly. They were martyred and they were persecuted as enemies of the state. As bigots, as narrow minded, stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and could contribute nothing to society. Your suffering will not be noble. So your mind must be filled with the word of God when all people persecute you and turn on you. This is no game. The Antichrist will demonize the saints for their beliefs. He will paint them as bigots seeking to oppress. He'll paint them as ignorant who want to hold back progress. He'll paint them as people who want to restrict and remove the freedoms of others. He'll say the testimony of Jesus Christ, the word of God is hate speech. And he'll make it seem as though all the problems the world has ever had can be traced back to the saints of God and their beliefs. I mean, this is basically what Hitler did to the Jews. Convinced the people of Germany all of their problems would be solved if the Jews were isolated into camps. He was so convincing and powerful in his speech that those who didn't approve of Jews being sent to camps and exterminated were silent about it as it happened. Let me share a story about this time. You've probably heard it. Someone said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian and attended church since I was a small boy. We heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people today in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was taking place. What could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we would hear the whistle from a distance, and then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday we noticed the cries coming from the train as it passed. We grimly realized the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after week, that train whistle would blow. We would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew the Jews would begin to cry out as they passed our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help those poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at what time that whistle would blow. And we decided the only way to keep from being so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. And by the time the train came rumbling past the church, We were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder till we could hear them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it much anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. It is something like this. Is what the Antichrist will do to the saints of God during the tribulation period. But instead. The main difference will be what we saw in Revelation 13 and 8. Where the people in Germany sang louder so they wouldn't have to hear the cries of the Jews. Those who have embraced the Antichrist and his ways will worship him for what he's doing. They will know full well. He is causing the saints of God to be martyred. They will know full well he is chasing them to the ends of the earth 
beheading them and killing them. And rather than sing louder so they don't have to face it, they will rejoice in the wisdom of the beast. They will rejoice in the power of the beast. They will worship him as God for destroying the saints of God during this time period. Now, our thought is, well, nothing like that could happen in America. I mean, we're a a Christian nation. But before we say something along those lines, let's remember the Reformation was birthed in Germany. In merely a few hundred years, Luther's Germany, once aflame with evangelical zeal, became the home of the Holocaust. Those who are my age and older have seen great changes in America in our lifetime. Not just what is morally permissible, but what we are mandated to accept as right and true. We're expected to affirm as right what the Bible calls abominable. We're expected not to speak about it. Threatened if we do. Great changes indeed. Now despite these changes, we aren't quite to the place where the saints of God from every tribe and nation and language and people can be openly slaughtered for their beliefs. But make no mistake, we are headed to that place. And make no mistake, it happens in some places. I told our Sunday school class this morning, I listened to a sermon yesterday. And the guy had research from Jewish rabbis who searched the world to find out what was the most persecuted religion in the world. And it was Christianity. Of course, not in the West. But when you go into Muslim majority countries, Christians are hunted and murdered and martyred. When you go into communist countries, Christians are hunted and murdered and martyred. There has been more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 2000s than there has been in all the years previous to that. Christianity is, outside of the West, is fairly wildly unpopular. And that anti-Christian sentiment, it is spreading to the West. Surely, we see that. But again, it's like... Evangelist Paul Washer said, they're not saying we hate you because you follow Jesus. No, no. We hate you because you're a bigot. We hate you because you oppress people who are different than you. We we hate you because you believe the Bible and that's just stupid. Every time we see that sort of stuff in our culture, make no mistake, it is the spirit of the Antichrist. This seal, it's coming. It's here. It's working. And it's only going to get worse. The Antichrist will be able to convince the world, the world, that the saints of God are the problem in the world. Not just a problem, but the problem. And that they must be dealt with harshly. The entire world will buy the Antichrist story and will hate the saints of God. Jesus warned us about this. And they will hand you over to tribulation. And they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. 
But notice this, at that time many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. Now, the Greek word for fall away, it's interesting. It carries with it the idea of being offended. In fact, this is how some translations render it. The idea is when this persecution starts, this worldwide persecution, some will be offended at Jesus, specifically the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so they will abandon Christianity. What will happen, what will likely happen is the Antichrist PR firm, which we know by the initials MSM, will continually pour out its complaints against the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and those who proclaim it. And the faith and devotion of those who claim to be followers of Christ will be tested. Will we be faithful to Jesus when Jesus is unpopular? Not just like, again, not like here. We don't see it yet. Will we be faithful to Jesus when believing in Jesus could keep us from getting a job? Will we be faithful to Jesus when believing in Jesus could cause someone in our life a relationship to break off from us? When the culture is anti-Jesus and anti-His morality and telling us how ignorant and bigoted that view is, what will we be more devoted to in that time? That's where the test will come. What am I more devoted to? The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ or a life of pleasure and prosperity? What am I more devoted to? What am I more influenced by? The Word of God the testimony of Jesus Christ or the culture around me. Because the culture is telling us Jesus is wrong. The Bible is wrong. And the Bible is saying, no, Jesus is right. The Bible is right. And these two are in opposition right now. And in our midst are people professing faith in Jesus, but denying the Bible and agreeing with culture. What influences us most? Social media influencers? The woke culture of our day? Or the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? The test will be whose praise do I desire most? Jesus saying to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Or the culture saying, well, you're not one of those kinds of Christians, are you? This gives new meaning to what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna when he told them to be faithful unto death. Especially when compared to what Jesus said, the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. The saints in this time have two basic options. They can abandon the confidence and the truth of God's word, the hope they have in Jesus and cease proclaiming the testimony of Jesus Christ, or they can die. And those are the only two options going to be given to them in this day. And in that day, it will separate the nominal Christians from the genuine disciples of Jesus. In that day, when it is costly for us to follow Christ, the words of Jesus will ring in our ears, Be 
faithful unto death. Now these saints, they're crying out for justice. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? The word translated in in my Bible as Lord, it means sovereign. I think the, the Greek word is like despote, where we get the word despot. It means one who has absolute power and authority. Despite the fact they were slaughtered for their faithfulness to Jesus, they are still faithful to Jesus. They are still calling him sovereign Lord. He is still the one to whom everyone will give an account and they're crying out to him to bring justice. This isn't a cry for vindication or for vengeance. It is more a cry for vindication as they were slaughtered. They were slaughtered as evil fools, bigots, haters of mankind. But when God judges those who slaughters them, it will demonstrate they were right to live by the word of God and proclaim the testimony of Jesus Christ. The response is fascinating. A white robe was given to each of them. They were told to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed even as they had been, was completed also. Now, the white robe is the righteousness of God Christ given to them. We'll see that next week in our study in Revelation 7. But they're told to rest a little while longer until the complete number is finished. I think, again, since all of the seals are, again, sort of going on right now, The saints of God who were slaughtered in days gone by. They're crying out in heaven. How long, O Lord? How long do you bring this judgment upon the earth? How long do you judge those who killed us? And God's answer is not until the full number has been killed. The answer is there are more Christian martyrs to come. The days ahead are not going to be easy days. The days ahead are not going to be the days of leave it to beaver where church is expected and church is okay and Jesus is fine. More and more the saints of God are going to be persecuted and martyred for their faith. And and from what we see here and in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. It seems the saints will be faithful to the word of God. They will proclaim the testimony of Jesus Christ until they're captured by the Antichrist and they are murdered for their faith. Apparently, none of the tribulation saints got the memo about faith making life easy. Faith, just having enough faith given you Pleasure and prosperity and an ease of life. Given what we see in the book of Revelation. My understanding is. Most if not all. Tribulation saints. Meet with a violent end. They don't have big churches. 
They don't have easy lives. They don't take the mark so they can't buy or sell. And so they press on until they're captured, until they are violently martyred for their faith in Jesus. And this, I think, gives us two lessons. One, Jesus and the gospel are central and not us. These saints are sent out as the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death. They are sent out and they go out knowing they will likely be killed. And they go. The gospel ministry, the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ is more important to them than their comfort or their very lives. They understand what Paul meant when he said to live as Christ, to die as gain. Secondly, we are dependent upon Jesus. Jesus is not dependent on us. The saints go forth proclaiming the gospel, but they die. And even though the saints die, Jesus still wins. Jesus does not depend on us. We depend on Jesus for life, for breath, for all things. And then we have the sixth seal. The great natural disasters. The sixth seal is the first real attack on the earth. I don't know any other way to describe what happens other than an attack on the earth. Um, this is going to increase as time goes on. The, the trumpets of Revelation 7, the bowls of Revelation 16 are more of this kind of thing. And, and these attacks, they sort of work to destroy the earth and show God's great power over all things. And, and I sort of see this along the same lines as the plagues in Egypt. God in those plagues demonstrated to the people of Egypt there was only one God. It wasn't Pharaoh, it wasn't Ra, it wasn't Hecate, it wasn't the Nile, it was Yahweh. And it was encouraging them to put their trust in the right God and not the false God. And when Jesus begins to bring these things to pass, this seal breaks and these things begin to happen. Science won't have an answer for it. The politicians can't stop it or fix it. And the world will begin to realize we have placed our faith in all the wrong gods. Here's a, an artist's rendition of what this may look like. So here's what it says. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as a sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the tree as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll. When it's rolled up, every mountain and island is removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the eminent people, the commanders, the wealthy, the strong, and every slave and every free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now this... Is all pretty significant. It seems pretty fierce. Um, I think the idea of a, a great earthquake is just a earthquake that is huge and devastating, bigger than anything we've ever seen before. As the earthquake happens, it caught the, the sky is split apart like a scroll. The mountains and the islands are removed from their place. Uh, as all of this happens, the, again, the sky is split apart. The stars of the sky fall. To the earth. Now, I don't know if this is like, say, legitimate stars or just big asteroids that fall to the earth. But either way, the picture is 
big things from space fall to the earth and pound the earth like the worst hailstorm the earth has ever seen before. Now, can, can you imagine? Can you imagine the devastation? Because I, I don't know if all of this is like at one time. Like suddenly all of these things happen at exactly the same time. Or if it is just like like in the days of Job, you know, there's one thing. And just as you get standing after that, another one. And it's one right after the other, right after the other, right after the other. But either way, can you imagine the devastation that happens at this time? I mean, what does a mountain moving earthquake do to cities? What does a what happens to the people on the islands who sink? What happens to ships on the ocean when the earthquake is so great it's sinking islands? What happens to people in buildings in those earthquakes? What happens to plants and animals and people when great big things from the sky fall and begin to hit them? What do people who live through these sort of catastrophic events do? Do they recognize it as the judgment of God and repent of their sins and cry out for mercy? No. And they, they, kings of the earth, the eminent people, the commanders, the wealthy and the strong, and every slave and free person, they hid themselves among the caves, among the rocks of the mountains. They, they hide. In verse 15 and 16 and 17, they recognize this is the wrath of God coming upon them. And it's coming upon everyone, right? So that's the idea behind the eminent, the commanders, the wealthy, the strong, slave and free. It's all people are, are beginning to suffer for this. And the idea of all people there is like similar to what we see in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Where it talks about the judgment seat, the great white throne, and all people are there, the great, the small, the deaf, and all those who have died are, are given up. Everyone from the least to the smallest, from the greatly important to the inconsequential as far as the world's concerned, shake with terror and try to hide. And even though they recognize it as the wrath of God, they do not turn to God for salvation. They do not cry out for God to be merciful. They hide from God. They cry out to nature to save them and protect them. In fact, it gets worse than this. As the chapters go on, we're going to see in Revelation 9, they're going to refuse to repent of their sins. And by the time we get to Revelation 16, they are cursing God as they refuse to repent of their sins. Now, here's why this is significant. When I was a youth pastor, I had kids who were wanting to live for the, the world as long as they possibly could. They wouldn't die and go to hell. They knew what that was like and that was bad. So what they said was, well, if the end comes and all of this starts to happen, I've been raised in church. I'm going to recognize it and then I'll turn to Jesus in that moment. And yet, that's not what they do, is it? They don't see this as the wrath of God. 
Oh God, forgive me for my rebellion, do they? They hide from God. They pray to nature. They refuse, refuse to repent. And then they finally, they curse God in the midst of their suffering. I've had, I had parents tell me. And I've had parents tell me, well, my kid was raised in church. And so I know they're not living for the Lord now. But if the end comes, they're going to see it. And they're going to recognize it. And they're going to turn to Jesus. And yet that's not what we see, is it? When the end begins to come, those whose hearts are hardened against God now are not suddenly going to turn to God for mercy then. They're going to be hardened even further. They're still going to refuse to repent. They're going to, whatever they've been trusting in up to that moment, they're going to cry out for that to save them. When that doesn't work, they're going to say, I hate God for this. That's a, that's a scary thought. People are not going to see the end coming and then turn to Jesus. They are instead they're going to do is they are just going to go further and further into their hardness, into their rebellion. Now, the, these who are suffering, they ask this question at the end of verse, verse 17. The great day of the wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Who's able to stand in this day? Are, are you? Am I? Are we? Well, we're not left to wonder. Who's able to stand? We'll look at this more in detail next week, but look at chapter 7, verse 1. And after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, the idea of the wind is significant because all of this is coming kind of like a wind. It's shaking the trees. So there are angels holding back the wind... And what are they doing? They are coming to seal, in verse 2, the seal of the living God and put it on the people of God. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. But who is able to stand when this time comes? It is those who have washed in the blood of the Lamb. It is those who are been redeemed by the Lamb and are wearing the white robes the Lamb gives to people. The only people who will be able to stand in this day, it will be those who are devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. The idea of waiting until later, I'll wait until then, I'll, I'll put it off, I'll, I'll know, is such foolishness, such nonsense. i close with a Words from a pastor in North Carolina. The martyred saints in heaven are praying for God to judge sin. The lost sinners on earth are praying to be delivered from the unflinching gaze of God. The saints' prayer will be answered. And the sinner's prayer will not. Friend, it is either grace or wrath. Psalm 130 and 3 says if... Thou, Lord, should mark iniquities. Who could stand? He goes on, I would not want to face God in my own righteousness. The best a man can produce is filth 
in the sight of God. Isaiah 64, 6. I thank God that I will stand before Him one day clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about you? When I see the Lamb, I will see Him as my Savior. Many will see Him as their judge. How will you meet Him? That is the question before all of us today. Even if we don't live through this, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will all give an account for our lives. And there are only going to be two two things said that day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord or depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus on that day will be your advocate who says he's mine. Or Jesus on that day will be your judge who says off. How are you going to see Jesus on that day? What will he be for you in that moment? The only way Jesus will be your advocate, the only way Jesus will be your savior. It's not if you've been a good moral person. It's not if you went to church. It's not if you were baptized in water. It is if you repented of your sins and you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That is what matters. That is how your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question right now, each one of us, we stand either under the wrath of God or freed from the wrath of God. And if we're freed, it's by repentance and faith in Jesus. And anything else we have, anything else we've built up, anything else we say, it's got us over here. And on that day, we will cry out to what we're trusting in to save us. We will refuse to repent. We will curse God in the midst of our suffering. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity to cry out to the Lord. Let's all stand. We're going to have a time of of silence. I like the silence in this time because it's just us and God. We can't distract ourselves with the music. And this time, just bow your head and close your eyes. And I just want you to listen. What is the Spirit saying to you today from this passage? What is He saying you need to do in response? Is the Spirit crying out, you must repent? You must believe? Then do that. Is the Spirit shouting a name of someone that will face Jesus as judge on the last day? Pray for them and plan to go to them. The Spirit shouting to you that you've drifted. You're not where you ought to be in your life. Repent. Recommit yourself to Christ today. We're going to have just a few moments. If you want to come to the altar and pray, you can. You can pray where you are. But as the Spirit deals with you, you deal with Him.